Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes. Today on the show, we are talking all things embryology. Our guest today is Mark Dow, who is the Laboratory Director of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility and Assistant Professor of Gynecology and Obstetrics at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. His areas of expertise include clinical andrology and in vitro fertilization. Dr. Dow, welcome to ASRM today. Thank you very much, Stephanie. So as is tradition here on the show with first-time guests, I always try to help people sort of introduce themselves or just letting the audience know a little bit more about them. So if you could tell our audience about how you how you chose where your interest in embryology came from. Well, it really started, um, I was doing my undergraduate degree at the University of Wisconsin, Madison, uh, uh, Madison in biochemistry. And part of that program, and they still have it now, I was taking it in the 80s. Um, I've been doing IVF for over 30 years, but it was called the BioCore Curriculum. And it was a two-year biology program. And the last semester, you had to go into a professor's laboratory and do a little project. And they just gave you a list of professors and what their area of interest was. And going down the line, I saw one of the professors was interested in fertilization and embryo development. That's kind of really cool. Um, I'm interested in that. So the professor was Dr. Barry Bavister, who was very well known and kind of instigating a a lot of things um, with embryo culture and many other things too. Um, But so I just kind of joined him and sat in his office and developed a little project um, it was on hamster sperm capacitation and acrosome reactions. Really, it went really well. We got it published. And then I finished my degree in biochemistry and was debating about a future degree, but wanted, wanted to take a little break. So then I moved to uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and worked with uh, Dr. Stephen Downs, who is a former uh, John Epic from uh, John Epic's lab. And he was working on the biochemistry of oocyte maturation, which I thought was pretty cool, and some embryo development as well. So I got to do a little bit of my biochemistry work, um, which was great with him. And I was there for about a year and a half. And then I really just, I was so fascinated. I really wanted to like help infertility couples. So I just happened to send a resume out to the University of Wisconsin Hospital and Clinics, who had one of the earliest IVF labs. And they sent me a letter a couple of weeks later saying, hey, we just had someone move. Um, and so we were interested in you. And I interviewed and got the job. And then I worked there for about five years until um, someone that a postdoc that I worked with at um, Marquette University uh, wanted me. He had since moved on and was a lab director in Grand Rapids and said he wanted me to work for him. I said, that, that's great, but I really want to stay here maybe in Madison and get my PhD. And he said, well, if you come here, my clinic will pay for your PhD. So it was a win-win. <laughs> so all I had to do is go to um, Michigan State University for that. And it was, it was a long haul for me. It, it took me about seven years, primarily because I still worked in the IVF lab approximately full-time and then commuted to Michigan State University and back and did research. So it did take me a good long time. And then I just started working in IVF labs um, as a laboratory director. I passed my boards at the American uh, Board of Bioanalysts and became a lab director. And then I've been working ever since then, since the early 2000s as a laboratory director and settled here at Johns Hopkins recently uh, in last August. 
Well, congratulations on that. Um, I, I want to ask, though, uh, you, you mentioned that you became interested in helping people you saw who were struggling with issues with infertility. Had, did, you, did you just see people while you were getting your education, or was there more personal reasons you know, for that or family reasons? No, it really wasn't. It was really just the fascination of fertilization and embryo development that really I was just very interested in. I mean, it's it, it beginning the stages of, of, of life um, yeah. and, and how that comes together. And it's just, you know, as long as I've been in this field, it's just truly amazing how, how it works with natural conception as much as it does sometimes when you think of all the barriers that, that are out there. So, um, but uh, it has become, you know, pretty efficient in the natural population, but um, some people, a great many, as you know, need, need some further assistance. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So then why, in your opinion, you've been in the field for a very long time, why is embryology so important to reproductive medicine? Well, I, I tell all my patients that IVF is a very expensive diagnostic test because that's really what it is. And it can sometimes, but not always, kind of indicate where the problem is, if it's maternal or paternal. We do know that a lot of the problems are from the eggs, just at least genetically, when we look at you know, aneuploidy rates in, in, in eggs versus sperm, it's, it's very prominent that the eggs have much more aneuploidy than sperm. And you know, we all realize you know, that has a lot to do with the fact that you know, every woman has the most eggs before she's even born in her mother's womb. And then they're exposed to everything that they've been exposed to during their lifetime, whether sperm are constantly being made and, and renewed and fresh. And, you know, you look at also the animal population, which I have a lot of experience there and that's very efficient, but most animals have babies when they're <laughs> a year or two old. So they haven't had any of these exposures um, to their oocytes for that long of a period. So, yeah, I mean, certainly PGT can give us a clue about the chromosomal problems. Um, we can still look at maternal and paternal errors as well to, you know, find out where, where the errors are coming from in those cases. But, you know, that's basically what I do. I just tell patients a very expensive diagnostic test. And I think they, they appreciate that um, because we really don't know where the problem is. Do you often find that patients are confused when presented with all of these options? Does, it, does it, embryology confuse them or do you have to kind of talk them through it? Um, yeah, I think it's very beneficial to have conversations or talks. Um, in all my previous places, I, I gave like a monthly talk to all the patients that are going to go through IVF, which I think is helpful because it is so overwhelming the amount of information that they get from their physicians, from the nurses. And I think it's, it's really helpful to just sit down. I can do a PowerPoint presentation and go over exactly what all the medications that they take, why do they take them, and then go through IVF and what the expectations are. You know, some patients think, oh, if I get 10 eggs, I can have 10 babies. And that's clearly not the case. So I kind of go over some realistic clues of what, what could go good and what could go bad. I kind of, as part of counseling, and tell you everything that possibly could go wrong. You know, no fertilization, no um, advanced embryo development, things of that nature. And just kind of give them realistic numbers. You know, you started with 15 eggs and this is how many realistically you may end up with. Always paramounting that maternal age is a big, <laughs> a big player in this in terms of not only the percent of embryos that grow to the blastocyst stage, but also aneuploidy as well. 
as we're slowly, I don't know if it's really slowly anymore, though, I think as we're in sort of a medium pace of getting back to normal life here after the last few years, and at some point, I guess most of our discussions in, in academics and in, in science and whatnot will, will finally be able to move from, you know, well, since the pandemic. I always have to address the elephant in the room as it, as it is. Um, with the shutdown and, and now with, with things coming back around and, and a lot of people worried about their health in general, reproductive health, things of that nature, have there been any, you know, advancements in the field in the last 24 months? Any, anything indicating that, you know, we're seeing anything good, bad, indifferent? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things, but I think to step back, it's, it's pretty amazing that most IVF centers during the pandemic, af- after the initial where, um, you know, no one, they, a lot of places canceled egg retrievals and in fact, majority of them, of them did. But after that, most IVF clinics have been just, just hit really hard with a number of patients. And I don't know if it was something about the pandemic that really motivated people to have a family or what it was, but we're, we're all kind of swamped. I mean, we see it in all the advertisements looking for embryologists um, on all, you know, ASRM and the and in the other sites, you know, very very busy, and 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 part of that also is just the implementation of more and more pre-implantation pre-implantation genetic screening um, is a lot of workload on terms of the lab. So, but in terms of a um, couple advancements come to mind, um, I think some of the work um, with microfluidics is kind of interesting in sperm separation. I know that Cornell has done some great work and is continuing to look at that just showing that if you use these microfluidics device, you can reduce the sperm or enhance the sperm that have low levels of DNA fragmentation. And that seems to be impacting outcome and and quite interesting. And and some suggest that it impacts aneuploidy rates in in the embryos as well, which is pretty amazing considering the sperm in general, we really thought had very little roles in, in, in aneuploidy rates in embryos. So um, that's kind of interesting, but hopefully that that will continue and use of microfluidics for um, other things, you know, maybe even from the start to the beginning from putting the eggs in there and then stripping them and um, with, you know, hyaluronidase and just growing them and, you know, hopefully maybe in the future, just a nonstop device that does everything. And in time lapse is interesting too. We'll see how that continues to grow, giving, giving us little clues. And then also the other big thing I think will be artificial intelligence. Uh, we're learning a lot about that, that the computers, um, when we teach them and, you know, show them, you know, thousands or millions of images, they're, they can learn and look at things and perhaps see things that the embryologist can't see in the embryos because, you know, the computer is basically looking at, you know, thousands or millions of pixels and, and how they're different. And hopefully they're seeing things that we can't see by the naked eye. So that looks pretty promising as well. So the, yeah, those are the couple, a couple of things. And then we'll see if the pre-implantation genetic screening done by the culture media, which is a non-invasive test, will continue to pan out. I think there's still some room there for improvement, but hopefully that will lead to some better results because um, that we don't have to actually biopsy the embryos. And that media too can tell us things maybe about metabolomics and proteomics as well that maybe uh, give, provide us additional information about the embryo and its ability to, to make a baby down the road, which is really what counts at the end. 
I want to go back to the artificial intelligence that you mentioned. Are there any specific studies or data that you're looking at, or maybe even something that you're working on, if you can talk about it? But uh, I, I am curious, because if you could explain to the audience a little bit more, just so we can be very clear about the picture you're, you're, you're painting here, is, is that working with machine learning, basically, and, and, and basically giving, you know, just like any algorithm, if you feed enough data into it and then request specific things about the data, you hope that it can spit something out. So when you say that there's things that they might be able to see that we cannot, what would be an example? Well, it's just, it's a different way of of viewing things, like how, perhaps how dark the cells are, or how they're spaced, or how uniform their spacing is. And we try to look look at this as embryologists, but we can't see the pixel by pixel (laughs) thing that artificial intelligence can do. So hopefully that will lead to, you know, some promising. And there, it, there really is some data that's really suggesting it's along with the embryologist grading, it's supplemental and, and can improve picking the best embryo for transfer. I have time for one more question for you. Are there any resources that you currently would, would recommend to either patients or even other professionals having to do with what we're talking about? There's a, there's a couple. Obviously, ASRM is a, is a great resource. Um, for people that want to start in the, in a career. And also I can't, I've been a member of SRBT since um, the joining of the two, uh, the reproductive biology special interest group and the reproductive laboratory uh, special interest group. And so that, that's a great resource. You know, we have embryo mail that we have through that. If, um, if you're an SRM member, so you can ask questions there and get some troubleshooting there. It's also a great resource for job postings, as well as the, the ASRM Career Center as well. The embryology certificate course, I think, is a wonderful thing for people to do, just as a training and learning all about andrology and embryology. And then you can test your knowledge and, and get a certificate. And I think that that is impressive for uh, new people to do. There's also the American Board of Bioanalysis, which is the company that boards us laboratory directors and and general supervisors, technical supervisors, and and lab professionals um, is also, I mean, they're the certified agency that all of us um, need to do to be lab directors. Also as a good resource, they have a group called College of Reproductive Biology that does offer some help in really really good annual meetings as well. And lastly, there is, um, if you're not a member of ASRM, um, you can go to there's a Facebook uh, private group called Mavericks, which a lot of people, um, there's about 1,500 embryologists on there. And you can, if you're having troubleshooting ideas, something weird, you have a weird patient, um, wanted, <laughs> trying to figure out what's going on from a lab perspective, it's great to post there. And people are very, very eager to help us help us all out. Well, that is wonderful. I also love the name Mavericks. That's, 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 such, a, that's such a good name. That's the credit to uh, Jerry Celia who, who created that group, I believe. So, so that's the one he chose. So, yeah, it's great. And I promise our listeners, I did not give Dr. Dow any money to mention ASRM. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I've been a member of ASRM for a, a long time, and I think it's great that um, most of us, you know, will we're very willing to help out. We all are in the same game plan of improving patient outcomes. Or just having, even if it's not a successful outcome for the patients to have a good personal experience that they know we did everything possibly that we could for them. Absolutely. My guest today has been Dr. Mark Dow. 
who is at uh, Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Dow, thank you so much for being able to take time out to come on the show today. Thank you very much. You can rate and subscribe the show at Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever it is you get your podcast from these days. I think there's like 5,000 of them or something like that. Uh, as always, you can email us, uh, asrm at asrm.org. Until next time, I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.